0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org slash media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of John, the 17th chapter, John chapter 17. For this past week, I was in Alabama preaching for a conference there, the theme of the conference had to do with our salvation from the vantage point of the roles of each person in the Godhead. So the Father's role, the Son's role, the Spirit's role. And my assignment was to talk about Jesus securing His church. And so I chose the 17th chapter of John what we're going to do is read the chapter together. And then, what I want to do is sort of a high level view of the chapter. I want to demonstrate four observations about Christ securing his church from the 17th chapter. And then we'll have some implications that flow out of that. So, John chapter 17, let's read beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. And by the way, this is the prayer of your Savior. Listen to your Savior pray. Maybe you've thought to yourself before, I just wish I could have heard Jesus pray. Well, you are. In these verses, you're hearing your Lord pray. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all Whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Let me just say one thing quickly. I want you to realize this is your Lord praying for you because he makes clear in this verse that he's not just praying for the men who have already come to faith in him. He's praying for everyone who will come to faith in him through the testimony of the gospel throughout the ages. He was praying for me. He was praying for you. Look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, But for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. And loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's go to our God together and ask His blessing. Lord, we need your help. These things are too lofty for any mind that is not strengthened by you to receive the things that we've just read. These things are so lofty that I am very much aware of my inadequacy and my insufficiency in myself to declare these things. But this is what you've ordained, that through clay jar vessels, the truth of your glory and the glories of your Son and the glories of salvation would be declared to men and women in need of salvation and to your church that has been redeemed and delivered by our Savior. This is your plan. And so, Lord, we rest in that knowledge that this is what you would have us do. And so we ask for your power, your strength to be on display even as I preach. Help me, Lord, to share the things that you have taught me. And strengthen my brothers and sisters. Grant us, Lord, that attention that we need to really learn. We know, Lord, the enemy would distract us in so many ways in this next hour if he had his way. Lord, help us. Strengthen us to be locked in in our listening that we might learn the things you have for us this day. And Lord, we do recognize there are people hearing me who do not yet know you. And it would delight our souls to hear that this was the day when someone came to faith in Jesus, that this was the day when the gospel, by the work of your Spirit, resulted in new birth, regeneration, new life, faith, repentance, toward the only Savior you've given to men. Lord, would you save? And then for your church, we've gathered as your church. We need this word. Would you edify us, wash us with the pure water of your word, we ask? In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus did not come into the world to make salvation possible. Jesus did not come into the world to make salvation possible. Jesus came into the world to save. He came into the world to make salvation certain. He came into the world to accomplish something. He came into the world to finish something. He came into the world with a precise purpose. This is why the Bible can describe our Lord's earthly mission in the terms of obedience. As Christ lives his life on the earth, as he makes his way to the cross, all that he did, all that he said, he was obeying his Father perfectly. In fact, if you look at the fourth verse, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Our Lord's earthly mission was the execution of an assigned and chosen role for the salvation of sinners. Something assigned to him, something chosen by him for the salvation of sinners in perfect accordance with a predetermined plan a plan determined in the eternal counsels of the Trinity. In accordance with the one will found in God, the Father has a role in salvation, and the Son has a role in salvation, and the Spirit has a role, each person of the one triune God. And so in accordance with that eternal plan, the eternal Son of God had an assignment. And that assignment... Included the salvation of a specific people. He came into the world a representative. He came into the world to be the head of a spiritual family that he would secure with his own blood, a new humanity, a redeemed humanity. His work would answer for the sins of his people both as you considered the people who trusted in him before he came and considering all the people who would trust in him after he came. His work answers for us all. He came into the world a great saving shepherd knowing exactly who his sheep were and he knew who his sheep were because they were given to him by his father. A people chosen for salvation before the world was ever formed. A people chosen as a matter of pure grace. God freely choosing them for salvation before they were born, out of a world of decreed fallen humanity. He was given a people for redemption. He would give His life to deliver us and to reconcile us to God. That saving mission had requirements. It required the incarnation. If he was to save us, he would have to take to himself an additional nature. The eternal son never having a beginning. God from all eternity would actually enter into the world that he made, that he spoke into existence. Born of a virgin, taking to himself an additional nature, a real human nature that had its beginning in time. And would never be laid aside. Forevermore. The eternal Son would be a man, truly God and truly human. Our salvation required a sinless life, a substitutionary and atoning death on a cross. It required a resurrection, all of it for the purpose of justifying the unjust in a way that's completely just. God would uphold His holiness even as He extended His mercy. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. And all of this ultimately, in the ultimate sense, was about glory. The chief end of God is God. The chief end of God is God's glory. That's as it should be. In fact, the sweetness of salvation is now our chief end is God's chief end. God has now put it in the hearts of his people that we live for his glory. That's what creatures should do. And so Jesus came into the world to save sinners for the glory of God. And when you say the glory of God, what that means is Jesus came into the world to save sinners that something might be known about God that would otherwise be unknown. God's name is on display because of what Jesus did. God's character, God's glorious attributes known in a way that they could not have otherwise been known. And so he came into the world a representative. Adam was the first man, but he wasn't just the first man, he was the representative man. Everyone born of Adam inherited the results of Adam's fall, his failure. Jesus came into the world, the last Adam, representing the people he would save. Not representing them like Adam did, not representing them in a garden, a perfect environment, but representing them in a world under a curse due to the first Adam's failure. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam lost something for his people. Because of his sin, we all died in Adam. The last Adam rescues his people, gives life to his people. So that when Jesus, if you rightly conceive of the mission of Jesus, you will see that he came into the world on behalf of a people. He was born for this people. He lived for this people. He suffered for this people. He died for this people. He was raised for this people. He saves this people. And right now in heaven, he intercedes for this people. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, in the ninth verse? There is such a clear distinction made between the people given to the Son by the Father and the rest of the world. Look at the ninth verse. I ask on their behalf. And then he says explicitly, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And he's going to come again for his people. This morning we worship. Awaiting the day when we will see our Savior face to face. All of it for the glory of His Father. All of it for the building of His church. All of it to accomplish, to fulfill everlasting decrees. None of it haphazard. None of it imprecise. And if you were to say, is there one chapter in the Bible that makes all of this crystal clear? My answer is, it is John chapter 17. If you want to know what God meant to do and did and is doing in salvation, just listen to God pray about it. Just listen to God in human flesh. Talk to His Father about what He is doing, what He came to do, what He will do. And so in John 17, we see the definiteness of the salvation mission of Jesus. We'll Look at this under five headings. Actually, four headings and then four implications, which would be the fifth point. I'll just mention them as we come to them. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus was given a people by His Father. Jesus was given a people by His Father. And this is just plainly stated. In fact, the fact that He was given a people by the Father is stated five times in 26 verses. Verse 2, "...even as you gave Him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. He makes mention of this twice in the sixth verse. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept my word. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And then look at the 24th verse Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Five times, in 26 verses, Jesus talks about this people given to him by his Father. That is very unique and striking language, isn't it? You know, one of the things that amazes me about so many professing Christians is they can read things like that and never be curious about what it means. We just fly past it. What is he talking about when he talks about a people given to him by the Father? What does this mean? And before we think that there's only five references in these 26 verses to the people given to him by his Father, now pay attention to all of the pronouns that refer to that people. All of the they's and them's and themselves and their If you count all of those, you're going to see that 49 times in 26 verses, Jesus talks about this people given to him by his father. 49 times. That's almost twice per verse. So that this chapter is saturated. This is the Son of God praying about his hour that has come, verse 1, and it is saturated with references to a people given to him by his father. And remember who's praying this? The one to whom they were given. Which means that the first thing, the preeminent thing on the mind of Jesus as he approaches the cross is the glory of God. You see that? This is the first thing out of his mouth, right? Jesus spoke these things in lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is what is most on the mind of the Son of God. The first thing on his mind, the glory of God. But then the rest of the prayer makes clear what is preeminently on his mind is this assignment he's been given regarding this people. And the chapter makes clear he's not just praying about his death. He's already anticipating the time when he will depart and return to heaven and the glory that he had with his father before the incarnation. In fact, you talk about striking language. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world. The prayer so anticipates the ascension and the glorification of the Son that He's already there praying for the people He's leaving in the world. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He goes on to say, even as I kept them in your name when I was here with them. So the divine son in this prayer is interceding on earth for a people that will one day be with him and see him as the glorified son of God and son of man. It is a fact that the father gave a people to his son. Now, second question we need to ask, very important, when were they given to the Son? When were they given to the Son? Jesus answers that question in his prayer. Look at the 22nd verse. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, now notice this, and loved them even as you loved me you have loved this people even as you loved your son so ask the question how has the father loved his son and look at the very next verse verse 24 father I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me what does he say for the foundation of the world. You have loved them even as you have loved me. How has the Father loved His Son? He has loved His Son from all eternity. How has the Father loved this people? He has loved them from all eternity. This people given to His Son for the purpose of redemption, He has loved them from all eternity. And of course, this is in complete accordance with the truth of a pre-temporal choice of the elect made in God that is repeated again and again in the New Testament. This is not some small subject. This is what is frustrating. When I hear preachers say, well, I just don't talk about that because it's divisive. How dare we not talk about what God revealed and gave to his people for our joy and to enlarge our view of God and to worship him as he is, which is sovereign. How dare we not declare those truths? And so you see it again and again, this mention of the elect of God, the elect of God, the chosen, You you hear it again and again. Let me just give you a few examples out of so many. Matthew 25, 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, Even as he chose us in him, which is to say God's choice of us, in terms of the order of God's decrees, there's already a fall in view. And so God's choice of us from all eternity was to be saved in His Son by virtue of the mission of His Son. This is how He would save sinners, in Him. So He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Revelation thirteen eight says, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not, and who's going to follow the Antichrist? Who's going to... Worship in accordance with the beast. Well, the 8th verse of Revelation 13 says, All who dwell on earth will worship at everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. When was your name written in the book of life? Everyone who refuses to worship the beast, their name is in the Lamb's book of life. When was it written there before the foundation of the world? Revelation 17 verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Or you could say it yet another way. When were these people given to the Son? I say to you, you were given to the Son when the mission was given to the Son. If his mission involves the salvation of a specific people, then the time when the mission was given is the time when the people are given. Right? The mission has to do with the people. So when was the mission given? Then you'll know when the people were given. The Bible answers when the mission was given. 1 Peter 1.20, speaking of Jesus, says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. As you know, the last days began when Jesus arrived. We are living in the last days. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, came into the world in the last times for the sake of you. Don't let that go by you. He was made manifest for the sake of you. He's writing to the church. He came to the world for you. But he was foreknown, and that word does not just mean to know beforehand. It always has to do with choices on the part of God. Predetermined love, determinations found in God. Christ was chosen for this task. He was assigned this role in the eternal councils of the Trinity before the world was formed. Then he came to the world for you. So first point, Jesus was given to people by his Father. Before time. And Jesus, when he came to the world, came to the world with that people in view, came as a representative. Second point Jesus was given a mission to accomplish on behalf of that people. So he's given a people, but he's not just given a people, he's given a task, he's given an assignment. He comes to accomplish something, finish something. A mission he's given. What did the Father give to the Son to do? He came into the world to make them to know the glory of God, to reveal God's glory to this people. I don't have time to read it all, but when you have time, just note the repeated emphasis on glory in this chapter. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 5, verse 10, verse 22, verse 24. All has to do with the glory of God. Jesus would make God's glory. His name, this is another way to say it, he would manifest the name of God to this people, which is precisely what he says that he did. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, right? They're not just knowing the Father. Now they're knowing the Father because they know the Son. They have come to understand that everything that Jesus does and says, this is coming from the Father. They recognize Jesus as the Son of God. This is Peter's great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, Simon bar but my Father who is in heaven has revealed that to you. They've come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they have received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. If you have a man living on earth and he came forth from the Father, he had an existence before he came to earth. These men see this, they understand this, they know this. Why do they know it? Because the Son revealed it to them. In the Son they met with this knowledge. Look at verse 11, and I'm no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Again, this is strange language, isn't it? Keeping them in your name. What does that mean? It means that the way God saves his people is by making himself known to them and the way he preserves his people is by going on making himself known to them. We were saved by meeting with God's name and we are kept in accordance with God's name. In fact, if you look down at verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 26, Jesus says, And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. He will go on making it known. Every believer in this place, you can testify, you know God better today than the day you were saved. You know your Savior better today than the day you were saved. And you'll know him better in the future than you know him right now. From glory to glory, we're being transformed into the very image of the one who has brought us to God. So the Son comes into the world to make the name of God known, the glory of God known, which is to say the name of God known to this people. In fact, he makes us to know glory in a way that we become disseminators of glory. Look at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Just stop there. So the Father's plan is for the Son to make the glory of God known to his people. That's what he's talking about when he says the glory you gave to me. You gave me the mission of making your glory known to this people. Now read on that they may be one just as we are one. The glory which you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. The Father gives to the Son the mission of making His glory known. The Son gives to His people the mission of making the glory of God known. So we have not just received this glory, we disseminate this glory. D.A. Carson commenting on this says this, glory commonly refers to the manifestation of God's character or person in a revelatory context. Jesus has mediated the glory of God personally to his first followers and through them to those who believe on account of their message. And he has done all of this that they may be one as we are one. This is a great delight to my heart, the knowledge that I've received as much glory through the preaching of the word of God as those disciples received meeting their Savior face to face. I have not yet seen Jesus, but I love him. And I rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory as I look forward to the day when I'll meet him face to face. You are in no way deficient when compared to first century believers because what God was doing through his son is what God is doing through the preaching of the word of God. It's the same mission, to gather the people of God into one, and he gathers them by the dissemination of glory, making his name known to us. Or to say it another way, and Jesus says it another way, his mission was to give to this people eternal life. Look at verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh... That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And just stop there. Listen to what the verse is saying. Jesus is sovereign over all flesh. He is sovereign because he's God over all humanity. And that omnipotence, that authority guarantees that out of that mass of humanity, everyone who is destined for salvation will be saved. It is that sovereignty that guarantees that out of all that flesh, the ones who've been given to the Son by the Father will be given eternal life. You must never miss the fact that in that verse, he says the people who are given eternal life are the people given to him by his Father. Yet he has authority over all flesh. Well, what is eternal life? What is eternal life according to Jesus Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And when he talks about this mission to give eternal life to those given to him by his Father, which means he's making them to know himself and to know his Father, how does he describe it in verse 4? I've glorified you on the earth. So his mission is to make the glory of God known, which is to say to make the name of God known, which is to say to give them eternal life. And we don't have time to walk through John 6 and John 10, but this fully accords with what you find there. Just a portion of John 6, listen to verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. when we stand in eternity in the future before the Lord Jesus, and there are the redeemed of the Lamb. Every one of those people will be people given to the Son by the Father before the world began, and He will not have lost one. They will all be raised up. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And I love this about John 6. Read John 6 sometime and you're going to see. He bounces back and forth between the language of sovereignty and the language of decision. Who will be raised up on the last day? The one who sees the Son and believes in Him. We can declare to the world, can we not? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But when you recognize the necessity of new birth to have that faith and exercise that faith, then you recognize everyone who believes is one given by the Father to the Son before time. These are the ones who believe. These are the ones who come. In fact, they began to grumble, verse 41, so the Jews grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them and said, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And that word draws is not a weak word. It's used of drawing up water out of a well. You know, you're dragging the thing out of a well. It's used to speak of people dragged into a public court when there was a riot going on. It is not a weak word. Now, we've got to be careful. It's not teaching that God dragged you against your will to his son. No, but God did bring you. How did he bring you? By granting new birth. And where there was regeneration, where there was life, there was a new set of eyes and a new set of ears, and a new heart, a heart made of flesh, not of stone. You saw the Son of God. You loved the Son of God. You wanted the Son of God. You ran to the Son of God. And from your vantage point, I chose Jesus. But from the Bible's vantage point, no, He chose you. He chose you. In fact, this is what Jesus said to His disciples, isn't it? You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I've ordained that you should go forth and bring forth fruit. He goes on to say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He keeps using that same phrase to let us know he's talking about the same group of people. I will raise him up on the last day. Who will you raise up on the last day? The people given to me by my Father, the people who believe in me, the people whom the Father draws. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. This is how the Lord saved you. Just like with Lydia, you were hearing the gospel, and the Lord opened your heart in a way that you understood Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon Barjona. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. And just as surely as God revealed the truth to Simon, He revealed the truth to you. You were hearing the gospel and He opened your heart. The Father taught you. That's why you came to His Son. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 10, Jesus talks about the fact that he came to give his life for his sheep. He says, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. They hear my voice. They won't follow another. And when people are grumbling in John 10, he says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not of my sheep. And he makes clear he doesn't just have present sheep. He has future sheep. I have sheep that are not of this fold. They must come also. Haven't come yet, but they're going to come. Why? Because he's the great shepherd who came into the world to save his sheep. He's the head of a new human race, a redeemed human race, the last Adam. He came into the world to rescue his people. This is the Jesus whom we worship. Well, how does he do it? How does he manifest God's glory to his disciples? How does he manifest the name of God? How does he give them eternal life? With words. With words. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Look at verse 19. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. This is glorious. Listen, there is Jesus. The living word. Face to face with these men and yet how did the Lord bring them to the knowledge of his son and the knowledge of himself? He did it through words. That the son was given by the father to give. I want to say to you this morning, listen. We are a people saved through a message. Yes, by the power of the spirit of God. But through a message. Peter being told of how he ended up at Cornelius' house, along with the vision that he received. In Acts eleven thirteen, 13, reporting on this, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Jesus saves us, but he saves us as we meet with him through a message. Listen to that verse in Acts 11. An angel sends a man with a message to bring salvation to a household. Why didn't the angel just go himself? Because this is how God has chosen to save sinners. Through the preaching of the gospel. This is why Romans 1.16 ought to really mean more to us than it does when it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is how our glorious God and our glorious Savior brings us into the knowledge of His glory, makes His name known to us, gives us eternal life. It's with words. And in fact, our Christian life didn't just begin with the Word of God. Our Christian life is sustained every step of the way by the Word of God. This is why the preaching of the Word of God is so vital to the life of the church of God. This is how God has chosen to save and sustain His people. With words, This is how God disseminates his glory through his church with words as we go on preaching the word of God and declaring the gospel of God. Third point, Jesus given a people by his Father. Jesus given a mission to accomplish on behalf of that people. Third, Jesus faithfully executed his mission on behalf of that people. I mean, he did it. He finished it. He completed it. What hour is Jesus talking about in verse 1? Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. What hour does he have in mind? you remember more than once during his earthly ministry, he would say something like this, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour he's talking about is the cross. It is the crucifixion. And what he longs for is the glorification of the Son and the Father at the tree. You understand that at the cross, God's name is declared. There is no cross unless God is holy. The cross says that God can be nothing less than just. He will not take a sinner's sins and just push them under the rug. They have to be paid for. And either you and I would pay for those sins in hell or the glorious, innocent one The one man given to save all men who will put their faith in him. He would come and die in our stead as our substitute, as our sin sacrifice. And there at the tree, the justice of God would be upheld because sins would not be ignored. They would be paid for in full. There at the cross, you don't just see God's holiness and God's justice. You see God's love and his mercy and his grace because What His Son did, we didn't deserve. What His Son did for humanity, nobody deserved. Nobody was owed it. And so glorify Your name, Father. Glorify Yourself. Glorify Your Son as my hour has come. Jesus makes His way to the cross to secure everything that He came into the world to accomplish on behalf of His people. He cannot rescue us without dying for us. This is why if you trace your salvation, yes, you can trace your salvation into the eternal counsels of God where He chose you, but you've got to make your way to the cross where He paid for you. We are a people purchased by the blood of the Son of God. The church is purchased by precious blood. And then what happens in time as the gospel, this good news is declared, is then the Spirit of God Procures that people through that preaching as he works new birth in hearts and grants repentance and faith in the Jesus who died for sinners. The Trinity is at work. The Father planned it, the Son executed the plan, the Spirit procures the people. This entire prayer looks beyond the hour as if it's already been accomplished. Verse 4, I glorified you, past tense, on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's already praying in view of his glorification, his return to heaven. Read what our Lord says about his mission throughout the gospel accounts. What you're going to find, he always speaks with certainty. There is no doubt about this. Why? Because what you're meeting with is omnipotence in human flesh, the omnipotent God in human flesh, doing the will of his omnipotent Father in the power of the omnipotent Spirit. There is no doubt about these things. This is why he's able to say in Matthew 16, 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Or John 2.19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Speaking of his resurrection. Speaking of his death, John 10.18, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father, the omnipotent Son, doing the will of the omnipotent Father and the power of the omnipotent Spirit. There's no doubt about these things. And so he executes faithfully everything he was given to do. So much so, while he's on earth, he's not just talking about the cross and the resurrection and the creation of the church. He's talking about his second coming. Matthew 24, 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. His death was sure. His resurrection was sure. His ascension back into glory was sure. And His second coming is sure. There's nothing left to chance. This is a precise outworking of what was decreed in God before he ever created anything. A people given to his son, a mission given to his son, the execution of that mission faithfully, completely, perfectly. He's able to say on the cross to tell us, it is done, it is finished. Which means, fourth, he secured everything that God ordained for his people. If you know Jesus Christ truly, if you have trusted in the Son of God, can I tell you, you you're as good as in heaven. You are already there. He will bring you home. Look at the 24th verse. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. He's already seeing himself in heaven. I want these people that you've given me to be with me in glory so that they may see my glory which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And isn't this, we don't have time to go to it, but isn't this exactly what Romans eight twenty eight through 30 declares? That those who were foreknown by God, he was predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified as good as in heaven. So when Christ came to the earth and carried out his mission, he was securing forever Everything God gave to us by grace in His Son. Now very quickly, let me mention four implications. When you see these four truths, four things that we take away from it. First of all, now I see the personal nature of the passion of Christ. The personal nature of the passion of Christ. If you believe... In a universal atonement. Listen. You're going to hear people say. I don't like limited atonement. Everyone limits the atonement. Everybody limits the atonement. You either limit it. With respect to its design. Or you limit it. With respect to its efficacy. What it accomplishes. Because if Jesus died. An indiscriminate death. On behalf of every human being. Atoning for everyone's sins and then only some are saved, then he died for some who are never saved. You have just limited the power of the blood of Jesus because it didn't save everyone for whom it was offered. In fact, more horrifying than that, you have Jesus suffering on a cross at the very moment that people are suffering for those same sins in hell. But if Jesus' death is designed to save the people given to him by the Father from before time. And if every one of those people will stand one day justified before their king, his blood accomplished everything it was offered for. That's why we don't like to talk about limited atonement. Let's talk about particular redemption. Listen, the value of the death of Jesus, not only could save every human being, but a billion worlds besides. If he was to save one more person than the people chosen by God, he wouldn't have to die again or suffer one more moment. How do you measure the worth of the blood of Jesus? It's not about worth. It's about design. Read Romans 5. He came into the world representing a people. And he lived for that people and died for that people and justifies that people. He rescued us with his blood. Now, here's what that means. I know that Jesus didn't just die everybody he died for me I mean I was on his mind I mean he came into the world to give his life to save me this is what we heard in the baptism this morning this is the Verse our sister shared, Galatians 2.20, Paul writing, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Christian, listen, Jesus died for you. Yes, he died for all of us, but he died for you. God chose Abraham, not the rest of the world. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. God chose Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church. Do you think he was the only one persecuting the church? But God chose him. Jesus stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus stopped him. And God chose you. Left to yourself, you would have never come to the Son of God. But just as surely as Jesus arrested Paul on the road to Damascus, he arrested your life. Because he came into the world seeking and saving the lost. I can see the personal nature of the passion of Christ. I can see the gracious nature of the Passion of Christ. See, we've got to ask a question then. Why you? Why did God choose you? Why did Jesus come into the world for you? Why did he die for you? Why me? Why me? Jackie and I were listening to Martin Lloyd Jones on the way to church this morning, and he just had a beautiful definition for faith he says faith is the willingness to limit yourself to what God has said to not ask questions about what God didn't reveal to be content knowing your smallness he said the pygmy nature of your mind (laughs) knowing the smallness of your mind to just abide in what God has revealed and so if we ask the question from scripture why would God choose anyone why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? I know what the answer is not. He didn't choose us because of anything seen in us. He didn't choose us based upon anything foreseen in us. People say, oh, God looked down through the course of time, He saw who would choose Him and who wouldn't. He put His choice on those who would choose Him. They don't understand the Bible. If God had looked down through the course of time and seen what human beings would do with the gospel apart from regeneration, He sees a whole mass of people who reject His Son. He would have chosen no one. No, not because of something seen in you, not because of something foreseen in you. In fact, God wasn't moved by anything outside of God. The reason He chose you is found in Him. And we know because we know who God is. It wasn't arbitrary It's not just picking lots out of a bucket. Oh, here's one, here's not one. It's not like that. There is perfect wisdom in what God has done, but He doesn't pull the curtain back for us. We don't know what motivated God to do what He did except one thing, undeserved love. Those whom He chose, He chose because of undeserved love. And He did it this way to demonstrate that God is God, that he is sovereign. It's amazing to me, isn't it? What vote did you have on the creation of the world? What vote did you have on the time you were born into the world? 1963. Did I choose that? What choice did you have as to your parents? What choice did you have as to your, I'm talking about your birth parents. What choice did you have as to your hair color, eye color? I guarantee you I had no choice over my height. None. But the last will be first. I'm assuming I'm going to be like 6'8", you know, in, in, in glory. Me and Butch Thomas. Me and Butch Thomas. We're going to stand tall. I think I've gone beyond what the scriptures say, don't you? I think I've gone beyond... You had no choice in any of that. What choice do you have in how long you live? All your days were written down in God's book before you lived one of them. Do you have a vote in that? But somehow we want to imagine when it comes to the matter of salvation, God left it up to us? No, I see that God is gracious to me. Romans 9-11, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, and not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Or as God said to Israel, Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel, why did I love you? Not because you were great, but because I loved you. I swore an oath to your fathers. Well, who made God do that? Every part of what God did with Israel, it was free. God did it because he wanted to. And everything he's done with us, he's free. He's done it because in his perfect wisdom and goodness, never forget that. You can't consider these doctrines apart from God's perfect wisdom and his perfect goodness as a matter of sheer grace and mercy. He set his saving love on you before you were ever born. And then his son came into the world to secure you with His own blood. And the Spirit is at work procuring that church as the gospel is preached in God's glory, His name, and eternal life is manifested through words. Last thought. This means we can see the precision that belongs to gospel preaching. The precision that belongs to gospel preaching. Jesus has sent us out. Just as He was sent out, He says of His disciples, I sent them out. You and I, we are ambassadors for Christ Jesus, disseminators of the glory of God. But listen, we've got to be clear about what our message is. Our message is not Jesus died for you. I challenge you. You've got a whole afternoon. Go through your New Testament and find me one place where anyone preached the gospel that way Jesus died for you. It's not what they say. What do they say? Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died because of sins. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Mark 2.17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew 9, 13, But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Now we go to the world and we say, Jesus, this is unimaginable great good news. The Son of God came into the world to save sinners. And we explain how God saved sinners through the death of His Son. And as we preach that message, sinners are awakened. See, here's what I can say to you. If you agree with God's diagnosis of you, Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Do you need Jesus? He came to the world to save sinners. Do you need salvation? Do you need forgiveness? Are you estranged from God? Are you headed toward an everlasting damnation? when you hear that Jesus came to save sinners and you say with the publican, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. As Paul said, I'm the foremost. I'm a sinner. Ah, then Jesus came to save people just like you. And if you turn from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have gospel promise that everyone who believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel doesn't come to you and say, are you the elect? We don't know who the elect are. There's no E on your forehead. We come with the good news. Jesus came to save sinners. And if you know yourself to be a sinner, and if you'll turn from your sin and trust in Christ, if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you. And then you'll say, he loved me and gave himself for me. I was one of those people that by the sheer grace of God, Jesus came into the world to rescue. Oh, this truth makes people proud. Oh, no, it doesn't. It humbles them to the dust. He didn't save you because of what you are or what he knew you would be. He saved you despite what he knew you would be. That's the glory of God. Acts 16.29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I don't ask you today, if you're one of God's elect, I don't, ask you, I don't say to you Jesus died for you. I say to you that Jesus died for sinners. Now, do you know yourself to be a sinner? I say that Jesus died for helpless people. Do you know yourself to be helpless? I say that Jesus died because you and I couldn't save ourselves. Do you know you can't save yourself? I say Jesus died for sinners because he's the altogether sufficient answer for every man's problem. Do you see him as the only answer that God has given for people like you? And I offer you on the authority of the king himself, the promise that if you believe in him, he will save you. Now, will you turn from your sins and trust in God's son for life? Every person in this room who has been saved by that king would say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your mercy to us in your Son. What wisdom, what glory, what power, what kindness, what mercy is on display when your gospel goes forth. May we, your people, be humbled as we should be by the knowledge of such a great salvation and worship you in and through your Son by your Spirit not just today, but knowing that we will for all eternity because our Savior has already prayed that we would be with Him and see Him where He is in the glory that is His. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.